Well, we look today at the four horsemen for a second time. Last week, we looked at the first horseman. We concluded that that fourth horseman on the white horse is not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the horseman who's described in Revelation chapter 19. He's the Word of God. He is faithful and true. He is the only truly just judge who has ever lived on this earth since the fall of our first parents. He's the only truly faithful person to have lived on this planet since the fall of our first parents. And he is the only one who has ever waged a truly just war. Are there just wars? Yes, there are. Wars that defend people from others are legitimate. But I didn't say that legitimacy and justice in that sense makes everything that happens in a war right and good. Wherever human beings are involved, sin is involved. And it is as hard on the victors sometimes as it is on the losers. So we thought about who's in view here. Who is in view here is one who is conquering and who is hell-bent on conquest. And in one sense, he is a picture of every empire and kingdom in this world from the dawn of human history. In another way, he has a final manifestation shortly before the return of Christ. Conquering and to conquer. Things seem so right, don't they? When we examine ourselves without the work of the Holy Spirit, our cause is right. My strength is the strength of ten because my heart is pure. As I look at people in history, I think that probably most world leaders, unless they were totally given over to depravity, like Joseph Stalin, an apostate who once studied for the ministry, or like Mao Zedong, I think that most people in history who have been conquerors have thought that their cause was just and right. Think of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great wanted to bring about world peace. Alexander the Great wanted all men everywhere, all women everywhere, all children everywhere to live in peace, to enjoy a common language, a common culture, a common religion. But don't cross him because Alexander the Great and his four generals who eventually succeeded him, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, were among the cruelest of all the people the Jews ever dealt with. The cruelest people the Jews ever dealt with were the Greeks who succeeded Alexander the Great, at least until the 20th century. And think about Adolf Hitler, just as a review. I think that Adolf Hitler believed he was doing what was right. You say, that can't be true. Oh no, my brothers and sisters, the ability of the human heart to deceive itself is incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. That's the essence of total depravity. Not that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but that no facet of our nature escaped the ravages of sin inherited from our first parents. And that means that, that humankind did not simply lose a gift of superadded grace. 
Humankind lost its ability rightly to reason, rightly to assess reality. We became subject to profound deception, not only demonic deception, not only worldly deception, but deception within our own heart. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And that's on page 1884, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Notice he calls them an adulterous people. What does that mean? It means they're putting their desires above God. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you don't have that you think, if I had it, I would finally be happy? Think about that for a moment. What is it that you don't have that if you had it, you think, you would finally be happy. Whatever that is, is an idol. Whatever that is, is an idol. What God wants of you and of me is this, to give him absolutely everything, to lay it all down on the altar, and to say, Lord, not my will, not my desires, my, 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 not my dreams, but yours be done. And you see, where does war come from? Why were these conquerors throughout history hell-bent on controlling other people? I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. Think about it. That spirit of control, that sense of making other people do right. But hey, Bob, it's about doing right after all. It's about doing right. But how do we get people to do right? Do we do what our Muslim friends did in the days of Muhammad and his followers? And make no mistake about it, Islam is a worldly thing. Islam is not so much a religion as a political philosophy with a religious base. How could you say that, Bob? Because you know, Christianity dates itself roughly to the time of the coming of Christ. A.D., the year of the Lord, or B.C., before Christ. Now that we hate Jesus, we've changed it to B.C.E. and C.E., before the common era and the common era. I don't mind the mnemonic. I just say before the Christian era and the Christian era. But we're in a time when people are rejecting the civilization of the past. What is the date of the beginning of Islam? It's the Hijrah. Not when Muhammad was born. Not when Muhammad had his visions outside of Mecca. Not when he began to preach in Mecca. But when he went to Medina to be their political leader, and to enforce on other people what he believed was right and wrong. 
So if you want to know the proof that Islam isn't so much a religion as a political movement with a religious base, it's dates. Before the Hajj and after, uh, pre-Hijrah and and afterwards. So again, look at James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What motivates the great conquerors of history? What motivates the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 too? It's a desire to have. It's a desire to force. We need more land. We need more food. We'll just go over and take it from these people. Nor are we as a nation exempt from such things. Think of it. Wow. Every nation on earth that goes to war, unless it's strictly to defend itself, is bent on having what it doesn't have, and that involves taking it from other people. Now, I'm going to leave preaching and go to meddling. Think about manifest destiny. Manifest destiny. Well, obviously, it is our manifest destiny to take the rest of this continent from the Atlantic seaboard to the Pacific seaboard. That's obviously our manifest destiny. The only trouble is that involves taking from other people. Think, for example, of what happened when gold was discovered in North Georgia. I've been there where gold was first discovered. What happened? We had a loyal group of Native Americans, the Cherokees, many of whom were Christian people, many of whom framed their lives according to the principles and precepts of Christianity. And yet, the $20 bill. Thomas Jefferson decided to drive the Cherokee out, to steal their land, to steal their farms, Most of those people were farmers. They were prosperous, small farmers with families. And they're taken out. And we look at a terrible place, Fort Smith. Have you ever been to Fort Smith? Have you ever been to that point where they had to leave and go into Indian territory? So many of them died along the way. They froze to death. Manifest destiny? to steal their land because there was gold on it? I'm simply saying this. We need to remember that we as American Christians better be careful who we're pointing fingers at because we've got three pointing back at us. This is a picture of human history in every nation on the face of the earth. Every nation on the face of the earth. Is it good to have a military? It's essential to have a military. It's important that we have law and order with justice. That's why it's good to be a policeman, to serve in the army, and so on. But we have to be aware of this. There's this tendency in you and in me to be discontent. I want more. I'm not satisfied with what I've got in life. That's that's quite a picture, isn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's not even thinking about literal war between nations at this point. He's thinking about why you have a fight with your wife or husband. You will show me respect. 
You will give me what I want. You will do this or that. Of course, we grow up and we mature. We learn to be much more subtle and much more manipulative about it. The point I'm making is the rider on the white horse is simply somebody like me. I want things. I want this. I want that. And the test is this. What is it What is it that you don't have that you want that makes you unhappy? I'll say this. Happiness is rooted in contentment. Happiness is rooted in laying my whole life, my health, my aches and pains, my spouse, my children, my grandchildren, laying everything in the world down, including my right to be respected. You know, a lesson I learned long ago. I don't have the right to be respected. Not by anybody. Not by my children. Not by my congregation. Not by my wife. But they all have a responsibility to respect me. Isn't that a funny way of putting it? People have a responsibility to show respect to fathers and to mothers and to government people and so on. But the moment I begin to think, I've got a right to be respected. Then I'll start sitting in judgment and say, I wasn't respected the way it should have been done. And that'll make me mad. That'll make me possibly lose my temper. So here we see it. Where do these things come from? Look at verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What does God call you when that's the way you pray? You're a whore. You're a slut. You're unfaithful to your marriage vows. You're an adulterer. That's what he says. And that theme of adultery that's throughout the whole Old Testament, it's an indictment of human nature. When I put anything above God and say, I've got to have this or I won't be content, I won't be happy. I'm an idolater and I'm an adulterer because I've been married to God, and God will take care of me. He will give me everything I need. You see again in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What does he mean by being a a friend of the world? He's talking about worldliness. Worldliness is not, as some people misunderstand it, oh, well, they go have a drink, or, oh, they uh, do this, or, or they do that. You know what worldliness is? It's clinging to this world. Hope that's stable. It's clinging to this world and saying, I must have this material thing. St. Paul says, if you have food and clothing, be content. If you're not happy, it's because you're not content. You've got to lay it all down, right on the altar, and not like the cartoon I saw about laying your burden at the altar. And It was a man carrying his wife. And uh, he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world Worldliness 
is wanting to keep up with other people. It's wanting to be prestigious. Just today, as I was reading my English Bible in Genesis 19, I looked at Lot and how he lost his sons and his daughters and his own wife. He lost everything he had because he was attached to worldliness. The only survivors were his two virgin daughters who lived at home, and they ended up becoming the ancestors of the Moabites, which means from dad, and the Ammonites, meaning Ben-Ami, the son of my people, because his daughters got him drunk. Lot lost everything. Have you ever thought about this? God doesn't want to take anything from you that you're willing to give up. Corey Tin Boom said, I've learned to hold the things of this life loosely because it hurts when God pries my fingers from them. So there is the great motivation of every conqueror in history. Every single one. Wanting something that's not theirs. And what does that lead to? It leads to war. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Because we see then what comes in the wake of war. Psalm 137. The Jewish people were finally conquered by the Babylonians. And they're being taken into exile. And it's such a beautiful psalm, perhaps we just ought to read the whole thing. Page 973. Who were these people? They were the Jewish people. What happened to them? The Babylonians completely, utterly destroyed their city and their temple. And did you know that the Jewish temple was destroyed on the exact same day of the exact same month in the Jewish calendar in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians as it was in 70 A.D. by the Romans? They'd lost everything. What's it like? What's it like to lose a war? What's it like to be confronted by the rider on the white horse followed by the rider rider on the red horse? By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, when we remembered Zion, we lost our home, we lost our homes, we lost children, we lost spouses, we lost parents, we lost all our wealth. We lost it all. And even our religion. We lost the center of our religion, which was the temple in Mount Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Imagine what it's like. Your wife is not fully clothed. Your daughters are not fully clothed. Your sons are in chains. They're going to be sold into slavery. You're hungry and naked yourself. You've seen hell on earth. As William Tecumseh Sherman said, war is hell. You've seen hell on earth. Hell on earth. And there you are. By the waters of Babylon, you're sitting, you're exhausted. You've been walking with fetters. We sat and we wept. And the tormentors, 
the tormentors. Conquerors love to torture people. You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the revenge of the Russians when they took that revenge on the German people when they took over what later became East Germany when they got to Berlin? Do you know what it was like? Do you know what it was like? Unimaginable suffering. What's it like to lose a war? You know, one of the amazing things for our country is that in its history, from its founding, with the exception of the war between the states, where one part of the country was conquered, but they were conquered by Christian people. And what I mean by that is people who exercised a restraint, by and large, in terms of taking vengeance. What's it like to be conquered by people who hate Jesus? What's it like to be conquered by people that simply want to destroy you and torment you and take out all of their anger, all of their pain and suffering on you? Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Hey, get up! Sing a happy song for us. We've heard about you Jews and how beautifully you sing. Come on, get up! Look at what he says. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. What did they do to them? Look at verse 9, and then we'll turn back to Revelation 6 for a moment. Verse 9, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against rocks. What? What's it like to lose a war? What's it like to lose the war in the ancient world and in the modern world where there's no Christian restraint as there was in the war between the states or as there was in the war for the American independence from Britain where there was restraint because nations were governed somewhat by Christian principles, Christian restraint? What's it like when there is no restraint? What's it like when it's under atheism? as in the case of Russia and Germany. What's it like? He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Back to Revelation 6 for a moment. That's a picture of the red horse, and that's the picture of the black horse that follows it as we turn back to Revelation 6, page 1919. What is it a picture of? What comes in the wake of war? Death on a black horse, with the grave coming behind it. And then we see this. What comes in the wake of it in verse 6, Revelation 6, 6? Then I heard what sounded like a voice saying among the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of famine and disease, dysentery. 
Battlefields are never sanitary places. They're places where disease spreads. Wow. Where plague comes. That's what comes in the wake of the white horse, so hell-bent on conquest, believing that it's doing something noble and good for the world, bringing about, under the seizures, the Pax Romana. We're going to make world peace, and we'll stomp on you with a hobnail boot if you get in our way. What's in the wake of it? War. And what's in the wake of war? Famine and disease and plague. Brutal things. And when the Lamb opened in verse 7, the fourth seal I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and the rider was named Death. The pale horse, the Greek word there, probably has a reference to what a corpse looks like. Have you ever looked at a corpse before they put makeup on it? I have, many times. What does a corpse look like without makeup? As soon as the oxygen is out of the blood, the blood turns dark. And what happens to the color of the skin? That's the picture of death. Should we glory in war? No. Should we defend ourselves as a nation? Yes. But what comes in the wake of this is something horrific, horrible, where people take your baby and grab him by his feet and slamming against the wall. That's what they did. That's what the Babylonians did to the Jewish people. That's what the Romans did to the Jewish people. That's what people have done throughout history, except where there's Christian restraint. How do we respond to these four horsemen? We look, lastly, which we will consider uh, next week, God willing, at verse 9. That's our response. It's all we can do. You'll never defeat Islam with military force. We're too weak to do that. What do you mean, Bob? I mean by that. Muslims are promised one way of salvation, and only one. And it's by dying in the cause of Muhammad, the Quran, or Islam. By dying. That's the only way to be sure of going to heaven, is to be killed on behalf of Islam. You and I value our lives too much. We raise our children to value their lives too much. So how in the world are we going to contend with it? Because I say to you, Islam is a huge threat to our nation. And if anything, in the wake of September 11, 2001, Islam has become much stronger in American influence than it was then. I've flown in and out of Detroit. What's interesting in Detroit in the airport? Most airports, we have English, we have Spanish. In Detroit, back in 2011 when I flew in and out of there, you have Arabic. Tremendous Muslim influence in modern America. It's why we do what we do. Wow. So what are we going to do? There's only one thing. When we realize what we're up against in the modern world, 
with the determination to control the world in the name of Muhammad or in the name of Leninism and Marxism or in the name of Maoism or in the name of you name it. What is our recourse? The only way to win is by losing. What I mean by that is we win by laying our lives down before the Lord, letting go of anything and anybody and saying, Lord, I choose this 14th day of November 2021 to be happy. What do you mean I choose to be happy? Lord, I take every idol, I take everything I must have in order to be happy, and I put it on your altar. And now, Lord, I'll pray. Because I can only pray effectively when I've laid everything on the altar. Otherwise, my prayers are terribly hindered. Think about the way they prayed as we prepare for next week. Look at war. Look at its legacy. Do you remember what Robert E. Lee said to James Longstreet? Lee said to General Longstreet, it is well that war is so terrible, else we should grow too fond of it. What? Fond of war? Hey, you know, it's fine when you're sitting on your nice horse and you're looking out over the troops and you're commanding them. When the boys are here and the boys are there and Sandy's and my distant ancestor, Georgie Pickett's troops are slaughtered because of that old man, referring to Robert E. Lee. It's fine when you're standing up there on your white horse and you're looking down. Else we should grow too fond of it. It's exciting if you're not being directly in the battle, hand-to-hand combat. War's exciting. It's kind of like a deer hunt. Wow. But Lee recognized as he spoke to General Longstreet, it is well that war is so terrible, else we should grow too fond of it. So that feeling, I got to have, I got to do this, the temptation to do wrong because you've got a need, you're not getting met, it's in us as well as in world leaders, lay it on the altar. Why don't you pray with me now? Lord, I take this thing that I think I got to have in order to be happy. Changes in my spouse, changes in my children, changes in my health, changes in my economic situation, changes in my church, changes in my perception of authority. Lord, I lay them all down on your altar so that I can pray effective prayers, so that I can see the world changed as I humble myself before you. Lord, give me to examine myself today that I might know you and love you and live for you for Jesus' sake and that my prayers may be powerful and effective because you know how much we need prayer and how much we're going to need prayer as we move towards 2022. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. O Lamb of God, you who take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us and grant us your shalom, your peace, your prosperity, 
In Jesus' name, amen.